I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name is Tom, and welcome back to American Biography. The Life of John Marshall, Episode 2, John Marshall Goes to War. At the end of our last episode, young John was being inexorably caught up in the rush of events that would ultimately lead to American independence. Rather than pick up right where we left off, though, I think it's first necessary to do a little background to make sure everyone has at least a basic contextual understanding of the historical process Marshall found himself caught up in between 1773 and 1775. I want to warn you at the outset that I'm covering only the basics and what I think is important to young Marshall in his development. For a more comprehensive view of the foundation of the American Revolution, both Mike Duncan in his Revolutions podcast and Zach Twomley from When Diplomacy Fails have both covered the lead-up to the American Revolution in great detail. First and foremost, I want to take a moment to recognize the obvious. There were indigenous populations with their own highly developed cultures living in North America for millennia before the Europeans came to the continent. Their histories are all very interesting, and the book 1491 by Charles Mann was an incredibly compelling read that I highly recommend to anyone who is interested in that topic. But for the purposes of moving this podcast forward, I'm going to need to dispatch of several centuries rather quickly. Permanent European colonization of North America began in 1492, and by 1625 the Dutch, the French, the Spanish, and the English all had made territorial claims on the continent. Over time, the Dutch were forced out by the English, and Spain, though still laying claim to vast swaths of territory west of the Mississippi River, increasingly focused its administrative energies on its more lucrative Central and South American colonies. What came to be the British North America John Marshall was born into was essentially a group of 13 colonies spanning the Atlantic coast 
stretching from parts of modern Maine in the north to Georgia in the south. The western frontier was not well defined, and this, at least in part, played a significant role in the eventual conflict with France, as we will see. French North America, or New France, was comprised primarily of the eastern parts of modern Canada, centered around Quebec, extending south into the Ohio River Valley, which, as I foreshadowed a moment ago, would become a very hotly contested area. Generally, the British colonies were populated by emigres from the Old World, and its inhabitants were people that came in search of an escape from the strictures of British society. It may have been religious liberty they were after, or increased economic opportunity, but they were people who willingly left the mother country and came with an eye towards putting down roots in the New World. For France, on the other hand, its colony was viewed as more of a commercial interest. Lumber and fur trading was priority. What settlement was done seems to have been less enthusiastic and had to be heavily incentivized by the French monarchy. As a consequence, by the time the two powers came to blows in the 1750s, the population of the British colonies would top 2 million, while that of New France would be only 60,000. For its part, Great Britain's administration of the colonies was hands-off, and at times they seemed to maintain only a nominal, if unchallenged, control over them. Internal problems, such as the English Civil War and later the Glorious Revolution, likely prevented the British from exerting a greater level of control over the colonies, and this roughly 100-year period of lassitude has come to be known as the era of salutary neglect. Unquestionably, there was a power vacuum in British North America, which over time was filled by an organic policy where the colonists developed their own mechanisms for ordering and running their society by necessity. Interestingly, even though the colonists developed the habits of self-rule during the era of salutary neglect, they appear to have never stopped thinking of themselves, first and foremost, as English, or seriously questioned the sovereignty of Great Britain or that the will of the crown and parliament should be supreme in international affairs or in setting trade policy. The only real control the British exerted over its colonies was economic, and this was exercised through a mercantile system. Mercantilism is related to bullionism, where the idea is that the more gold a nation possesses, the more powerful it is. One way to achieve this is to maintain a favorable balance of trade in which you, as a nation, are exporting more goods than you're importing. Britain, therefore, established a relationship with its North American colonies, wherein the colonies supplied raw materials at low cost to the mother country, which it then used to produce finished goods. Britain would, in turn, sell those finished goods to the rest of Europe and back to the colonists. To enforce the system, Parliament passed a series of navigation acts that forbade the colonies to have any direct trading partners besides Britain. All trade theoretically had to go through Britain, and all goods entering or leaving North America were required to be aboard British ships. This effectively created a captive market in which the colonists were at the mercy of the prices set by British merchants. Though this was all grossly exploitative, and particularly unfair to modern sensibilities accustomed to a free trade paradigm, 
the average colonist likely saw it as a reasonable concession in exchange for their physical and civil security the former assured by british military might and the latter assured through traditional english liberties things began to change in the 1750s british interests had begun to extend more deeply into the contested ohio river valley and this made france nervous in an attempt to arrest this spread france sent a two thousand man force into the disputed territory and built a series of forts in seventeen fifty three chasing out british traders and riling up native allies of britain in the process the next year saw events escalate with a series of indecisive skirmishes heralding the beginning of something more serious on the horizon the british sent an army to north america in seventeen fifty four the french did likewise the following year and in 1756 a formal declaration of war was made so just to clarify for a moment for any non-american listeners that will ever hear this podcast the conflict that's about to erupt here is known domestically as the french and indian war but this is really just the north american theater of the global seven years war you might be more familiar with and for american listeners who don't already know the French and Indian War was only a relative backwater in a much larger international conflict called the Seven Years' War. So there you go. In any case, the particular details of individual battles are less important to us than understanding the consequences of the eventual British victory in 1763. And this is a good point to bring John Marshall into the discussion. Young Marshall would have been eight years old at the time of the war's end. This means his formative years coincide almost precisely with the devolution of the relationship between Britain and its North American colonies. Overall, compared to many of his important contemporaries, we have less personally revelatory writing from Marshall. So it's not surprising that there's no surviving contemporaneous writings from these years to give us his real-time impression of events. But we are lucky to have some later writings from Marshall about this time specifically. After the conclusion of the French and Indian War, Britain absorbed New France into its domain. This acquisition, plus the need to deal with the large debt ostensibly accrued in defense of the colonies, must have made it seem like a logical moment to the British to try and reimagine the administration of the North American colonies and try to place it on a sustainable footing. In the view of the Prime Minister, George Grenville, the best way to accomplish this would be to devise a system where revenues raised from the colonies could pay for their governance and defense. What Grenville imagined was the adoption of a direct tax scheme, which used the revenues raised from the colonies to maintain a contingent of regular British troops in North America, stationed mainly on the western borders for the defense of the colonies, and also create a fund from which the crown planned to pay colonial judges and governors. The ends of these reforms were not, in and of themselves, despotic or tyrannical. However, the means pursued in their attainment threatened to turn the colonists' very conception of themselves upside down. Looking back, Marshall saw that Britain was about to produce a system of measures which tore asunder all the bonds of relationship and affection that had sustained for ages, and planted almost inextinguishable hatred in the bosom where the warmest friendship had long been cultivated. In his description of the pre-revolutionary mindset, 
Marshall says every colonist believed himself entitled to the English Constitution's advantages, nor could they admit that by crossing the Atlantic, his ancestors had relinquished the essential rights of British subjects. The new revenue program pursued by Grenville trampled on what the colonists had come to believe constituted English liberties, that the British didn't share the same def- When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Definition was at the crux of the problem, as Marshall points out. The degree of authority which might rightfully be exercised by the mother country over her colonies had never been accurately defined. In Britain, it had always been asserted that Parliament possessed the power of binding the colonies in all cases whatever. In America, at different times, in different provinces, different opinions had been entertained on the subject. Language that Marshall used to specifically refer to the New England colonies in his writings I'm going to use here slightly out of context, because I believe it fairly characterizes the prevailing popular opinion of the colonies by the time the Second Continental Congress issued the Olive Branch Petition. Habits of independence had nourished the theory that the colonial assemblies possessed every legislative power not surrendered by compact, that the Americans were subjects of the British crown, but not of the nation and were bound by no laws to which their representatives had not assented. The Acts of Parliament possessed only an external obligation, that they might regulate commerce, but not the internal affairs of the colonies. This is to say that direct taxation by Parliament constituted meddling in internal colonial affairs by a body in which the colonists had no representation. In the eyes of the colonists, this was taxation without representation and was, therefore, a fundamental violation of their English liberties. So, by 1765, when Parliament rolled out the Stamp Act, Marshall could accurately describe the fears of the colonials when writing, it was sincerely believed to wound vitally the constitution of the country and destroy the most sacred principles of liberty. 
The Stamp Act's reach was ubiquitous and required almost all printed material, such as newspapers, periodicals, decks of cards, licenses, legal documents, to all be printed on official paper that carried an embossed revenue stamp. Opposition to the act was immediate and strong. Patrick Henry railed against it in Virginia. Local boycotts of British imports were organized, and the first colonially initiated Continental Assembly, the Stamp Act Congress, met in New York and formalized these local boycott movements into a continent-wide boycott of British goods. In the end, it was so effective that British merchants, as much as anybody else, helped to convince Parliament to repeal the measure. But rather than an end, the repeal of the Stamp Act marked the beginning of a decade-long struggle between increasingly radical colonists and an increasingly exasperated Parliament. In the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson obliquely, if somewhat hyperbolically, refers to these ensuing years as a long train of abuses and usurpations, evincing a design to reduce the colonists under absolute despotism. But then again, Thomas Jefferson always had a flair for the dramatic. In 1770, the British tried to skirt the issue of direct taxation with the Townsend Acts, which imposed a variety of import duties on various goods coming into the colonies in order to raise revenue. This strategy was a complete failure, and after more protests and colonial non-importation agreements, all but the duty on tea was repealed. This duty would be rolled over into the 1773 Tea Act that allowed the nearly bankrupt but well-connected East India Company to have a virtual monopoly over the colonial tea market. Even though the tea with duties was cheaper than it had previously been, price wasn't the point. Principles were still at stake. Not to mention that the revenues raised still went to pay colonial judges and governors. This theoretically tied the officials' loyalties more closely to Great Britain than to the people with whom they lived and over whom they governed. So resistance persisted. The most famous pushback came from Boston, where local Sons of Liberty dumped some 90,000 pounds of tea, valued at a modern $1.7 million, into the harbor. With this action, even factions within Parliament sympathetic to the colonial cause knew this couldn't be tolerated, and lined up to pass the so-called Coercive Acts which closed the port of Boston and effectively dissolved the colonial government in Massachusetts. Marshall was 19 when the Coercive Acts took effect, and was more likely acting as a witness to history rather than a detached historian when he wrote of the feeling that swept the continent in the wake of Boston Harbor's closing. All perceived that Boston was to be punished for having resisted, only with more violence, the principle which they had all resisted and that the object of the punishment was to coerce obedience to a principle they were still determined to resist. They felt, therefore, that the cause of Boston was the cause of all, that their destinies were indissolubly connected with those of that devoted town, and that they must submit to be taxed by a parliament in which they were not and could not be represented, or support their brethren who were selected to sustain the first shock of a power which, if successful there, would overwhelm them all. The unintended consequences of this harsh British response 
was to forge a sense of unity out of the shared danger the colonies now perceived. To repurpose a quote Ben Franklin would drop a few years later, if the colonies dared to continue to resist, they must all hang together, or they would each assuredly hang separately. Events now began to move apace. Thomas Marshall was on hand as a delegate for Fauquier County to witness Patrick Henry's legendary Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech, the details of which he excitedly shared with the rest of his family upon returning home. That April, the running battle of Lexington and Concord took place, representing the first open and direct military confrontation between colonists and royal troops. Even though the violence had taken place far from Virginia, the writing was on the wall, and military preparation now began in earnest. That May, 50 to 60 men mustered as the Falkwar County Militia. When the captain was a no-show, the 19-year-old John Marshall led the drills. That summer, Virginia began raising two regiments. The 1st Battalion formed were the Culpeper Minutemen, which included a company known as the Falkwar Rifles, along with their young 1st Lieutenant, John Marshall. His father would also be near at hand, as Thomas Marshall was installed as a major of the battalion. The Culpeper Minutemen were a rough-and-tumble collection of frontiersmen, whose appearance calls to mind James Fenimore Cooper's Hawkeye from Last of the Mohicans. Gene Smith describes the battalion as an assemblage of 350 crack marksmen who wore the uniform of the frontier, fringed trousers, often made of deerskin, and strong brown linen hunting shirts dyed with leaves. A number of men embroidered liberty or death on their shirts in large white letters, thus earning the battalion the name of shirtmen. They carried tomahawks and scalping knives in their belts, and were armed with their individual rifles or muskets. To complete the backwoods appearance, each man wore a buck's tail in his hat. By September of 1775, the British royal governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, held the important port town of Norfolk with the support of a small fleet anchored offshore. He also had 150 British regulars under his command, supported by a local loyalist militia, and several hundred armed runaway slaves. With this foothold, the governor threatened to dominate the surrounding area and even posed a possible danger to the capital at Williamsburg. Determined to avoid this, Patrick Henry, who by this time had assumed overall command of the colony's patriot militia, ordered the Culpeper Minutemen to join the 2nd Virginia at Norfolk and dislodge Dunmore. The country and the marshals were now firmly on a path where all before them was cloaked in the unpredictable fortunes of war. As they stood on the banks of the Elizabeth River, outside the village of Great Bridge, on the approach to Norfolk, they had no idea that they were about to descend into what Smith called the bloodiest battle fought in Virginia during the Revolution. So this is where I think we'll stop for today. Thank you again for listening. If you have any suggestions, comments, questions, or concerns, please send them my way at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. A final programming note. As a companion to this week's episode, I've put a timeline of events leading up to the American Revolution on the Facebook page and on the website, AmericanBiography.webs.com. If you're on the website, please consider supporting American Biography. There, you can find a secure PayPal donate button. 
You can also help by liking and sharing American Biography on Facebook or by writing a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Alright, I think that's all for now. So please join me next time as we discuss the Battle of Great Bridge and the fate of Norfolk. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.